Well, good morning. I'm Camper Mundy, uh, associate pastor here, and I too would like to welcome those of you who are visiting. Uh, we're glad that you joined us this morning. And this morning we continue in the Gospel of Mark, our uh, sermon series, uh, second half of Mark's Gospel, uh, where we were last winter and spring. We've picked up this winter and spring, the second part, and uh, this morning in chapter 10. Uh, we'll be wrapping up with chapter 10 today, and then next week we reach chapter 11. And I bring that up because next week we reach the triumphal entry of Jesus, uh, where Jesus is hailed as king only to be rejected and nailed to a cross a few days later. The final week of Jesus' life and ministry leading up to the crucifixion. And Mark dedicates over one-third of his entire gospel to that one week. In the end, the people don't see Jesus clearly. They're blind to truth. Their hearts are hard. Well, this morning, uh, we continue that journey toward Jerusalem. And we're going to encounter several different folks. We're going to encounter some little children, a rich man, a blind man. And we're going to seek to see Jesus through their eyes. And that brings us to our passage this morning. Mark chapter 10, uh, verses 13 through 22, which is a bit further than your order of worship says. Uh, but verses 13 through 22, and then also verses 46 to 52. Uh, we'll begin on page 846 if you're using the Pew Bible. Let's take a moment to pray before we hear God's word. We do come to you, Jesus. We come to you this morning. We thank you that by the power of your spirit, you breathe life into us. And we need you to continue to do that into our hearts. We thank you for your word. We ask that you would, would penetrate our hearts with your word this morning. Convincing us more and more of the good news of your grace. That our sin does not have the last word in Jesus. Would you convince us? We believe, but help our unbelief. And so we come to you. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so now, hear the word of God from Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 13. And the people were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 
You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to Jesus, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as Jesus was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed Jesus on the way. And this is the word of God. Three stories, and as we'll see, all connected together. And we're going to look at them in two parts. Two parts this morning. First, seeing Jesus, and then trusting Jesus. Seeing Jesus and trusting Jesus. And so our first point, seeing Jesus. And we'll focus on verses 46 through 52. So here we find that Jesus is in Jericho, just outside of Jerusalem where he is headed. Mark has already reminded us of why Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Just a a few verses earlier, for the third time, Jesus speaks to his disciples and foretells his upcoming death and resurrection. And there's also a crowd that is headed to Jerusalem as well. Now, they're not headed there so much because Jesus is, but rather this is the annual Passover feast. These are religious pilgrims. They are on the road like they are every year headed to Jerusalem. And along the way, there would often be beggars, maybe blind, maybe a lame cripple for some reason, unable to get to Jerusalem. And so they would be on the roadside begging and and people uh, customarily would give alms uh, to help provide for the needs of these who needed so badly. And of course, we come upon this one particular blind beggar, uh, given the name here, Bartimaeus, and he hears the crowd, and he hears the the murmur in this crowd that, that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, and so he cries out to Jesus. Now, the the people in the crowd don't want anything to do with it. They tell him to shut up. They see him as insignificant and annoying. But the blind man will not be silenced. He yells louder. He is bold and persistent. He lays it all out on the line. Nothing else matters except Jesus. 
And it's interesting to note, uh, the crowd here, they refer to him as Jesus of Nazareth. That, that, that's what the, the blind man has overheard. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Uh, it's, it's his hometown identity, identifying him by his hometown. Uh, I grew up about an hour uh, north of Atlanta, small city Gainesville, Georgia. It'd be like referring to me as, you know, camper from Gainesville, to help you distinguish between all the other campers that you know. <laughs> and so here we have Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, maybe they see him as a uh, a popular figure, uh, possibly a hometown hero, local celebrity. They're excited to be around uh, Jesus of Nazareth. But that's not how the blind man calls out. That's not how he refers to him. The blind man calls out Jesus, son of David, declaring his royal, divine identity, son of David being a title for God's chosen king, his anointed one. The blind man sees Jesus as King of kings, Lord of lords, life-giving Son of God. Well, Jesus hears the cry of the blind man, and he stops. And like a king, he gives an order. Call him. Bring him to me now. And then, like a servant, he asks a question. What do you want me to do for you? Now, at this point in the story, we may stop and say, why would Jesus even ask the question? You're Jesus. You're the Son of God. This is a blind man. He wants to be healed. Would you just speak the word and he will be healed? But Jesus does something wonderful, remarkable here. He turns the tide. Because this man has just been rebuked and marginalized by the crowd, counted as nothing, pushed outside of the community. And Jesus calls him into the center and recognizes him as a person. Doesn't presume upon him, but looks at him and asks him a question, speaking very personally to him. What do you want me to do for you? In asking this question, he is bestowing dignity on the outcast. In fact, he is empowering the powerless. He is inviting this man to define what mercy will look like. What do you want me to do for you? Well, the blind man goes for broke. Lord, I, I want to see. I want to see. And I wonder... I wonder if Jesus smiled and thought to himself, man, you already see better than anyone else in this crowd. Because the blind man sees Jesus for who he really is. The blind man has faith in Jesus, and that faith is commended here in this story. You know how the writer of Hebrews puts it, faith is being sure of what we hope for, and certain of what we do not see. The blind man does not see with physical eyes, but rather through the eyes of faith. Well, faith always has an object. And the object of true faith is a person. And that person is Jesus. The irony here is the blind beggar. The blind beggar is the one who actually sees he sees Jesus 
for who he really is. And of course, that brings the question before us. Do we? Do we see Jesus for who he really is? Do you see Jesus clearly? Do you see him clearly this morning? Or rather, what is blinding you? What what is hindering your sight? And that brings us to an important issue, an issue we've talked about here before idols, idols of the heart, which also brings us to our second point, trusting, trusting Jesus. As you may know, any other object of faith is an idol, idols of the heart, whatever else we trust in, whatever else we trust in to to take care of us, to fulfill us, to give us meaning, security, significance, anything else is an idol. Whatever sets your priorities is your God. Now, we all have them. We all have idols and we're going to struggle with them until the day we die or Jesus returns. We are all blinded by them. You're probably familiar with the words of John Calvin, our hearts are idol factories. Just turning out one idol after another after another, looking for one more thing to grasp for significance or meaning or security. One more thing. Think about the the things that we trust in. Maybe it's our status, career, money, our education. Get a good education. This will get me where I need to go. Our health. Money, relationships, family, our achievements, our acquisitions. Did I mention money? But I realized if, if, I, if I talked to most of you here, if you are a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and I said, who are you trusting? And you would say, well, I do trust in Jesus. But so much of the time, for so many of us, it is trusting in Jesus plus something else. Trusting in Jesus plus, you fill in the blank. Jesus, in case he lets me down, I've got this to hold on to, or this to get me through. And Jesus plus anything is not the gospel. Now, these other things are not inherently bad, no. In fact, an idol can be defined as taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing. Taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing. Uh, For example, let's take the rich young ruler. Uh, Found here in Mark chapter 10. He's also uh, in Matthew and Luke's uh, gospel accounts. The rich young ruler. He has some very good things. He has wealth. He's got means, means to provide. He has his health. He's young. Power and authority. He is a, a man of status and position. He can help things move one way or the other. But these good things have become ultimate things for him. And so Jesus speaks very directly, very lovingly, speaks very directly into his heart, calling him to repent of misplaced trust and to look to Jesus, to trust in him alone and to follow him. Now, though having a lot of money can be a difficult thing, as Jesus points out later in this passage, 
The story of the rich young ruler is not so much about having money, but more so about trusting in money and trusting in anything else, anything other than or even alongside of Jesus as an idol. Plain and simple, it's sin. And to live by faith, we need our idols, our, our false gods. We need them exposed so that we can repent of them, so that we can cry out in humility and boldness, just like this blind man, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But how? How do we recognize our idols? How do we discover the things that blind us? Because you know, the definition of something that we're blind to is typically that we're blind to it. We can't see. How do we, how do we find out what it is? Well, to start, we need to go to Jesus. We need to pray to Him. We need to ask Jesus by His Spirit to reveal these idols to us. We must listen to Him through His Word. And as His Word tells us, we must examine our lives, both individually, privately, but also throughout Scripture. We hear the testimony that we, we do this in the context of community as well, the family of faith. Knowing and being known by one another. Because in some ways you can see my life better than I can see it. In some ways I can see your life better than you can see it. So just briefly, here are five questions that might help expose idols in your heart. Good questions to think about on your own. Good questions to have a discussion with uh, with an entrusted friend. Uh, Five questions. You probably won't be able to answer them right now. Maybe you will, uh, but I do encourage you to think about them later. But first, what dominates your thoughts? What do you think about, especially those times when when you're alone, it's quiet, maybe you're taking a walk, you're driving from point A to to point B? What dominates your thoughts? Uh, The last few weeks I've been taking a particular walk in the evening, the same route. Uh, I got tired of my old route, started, started taking a new one. And it's interesting, as I was thinking about idols and what do I think about, I began to realize that at different turns in this walk, my mind starts spinning on different things. And I began to realize how many of those things turned negative. And ultimately, that some of those things were really pointing to idols. If I could just blank, if I just had blank, and I'm recreating my life. And then I have this moment where the, the walk turns around and I go, okay, now it's time to repent on the way back home <laughs> and ask Jesus to help me. So what do you think about? Number two, what dominates your conversations? Now clearly we are much more guarded about what we say, or at least most of us are. Some people speak, speak and then they think. But most of us think before we speak. Uh, But look at what dominates your conversations. Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your money? What are you most afraid of losing? Or the flip side of that, what are you most afraid of never gaining? So five uh, simple questions. What do you think about? What do you talk about? Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your money? What are you most afraid of losing or never gaining? Okay, so that's a start. That's a start at uncovering the idols of our hearts. But then what do we do? What do we do with them? I mean, we just saw it. The rich young ruler 
had a major idol exposed, idols of his heart exposed, and he walked away from Jesus. Well, whatever else we're trusting in besides Jesus, we must lay it all at the foot of the cross. We must lay it all at the foot of the cross and cry out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. I want to see. I want to be freed from the things that blind me, that keep me from seeing you clearly, that that keep me from trusting you fully. So like the blind beggar, we come to Jesus empty-handed, with nothing, looking to Him and to Him alone. Well, before we move on, note the different postures in coming to Jesus. The difference between the rich young ruler and the blind beggar. The one who has it all, so to speak, and the one who has nothing. Rich young ruler, verse 17. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This man ran to Jesus. He knelt before him. He knelt before the King of kings and Lord of lords. And then verse 20, we see that this is a very moral person. He he does good things. Verse 22, we see that he's also very capable. He's a successful person. He has good things. Outward posture seems reverent and humble as he comes to Jesus. But he comes on the basis of his own goodness and his own strength. And then later, as the story unfolds, the inner posture of his heart is revealed. Deep down, he's really full of pride, self-sufficient. The rich young ruler trusts in who he is and what he's done and what he has. The one thing he lacks is a heart turned toward Jesus. And so he walks away. And by contrast, the blind beggar comes to Jesus not on the basis of his strength, but on the basis of of his weakness. Like the blind beggar, we come to Jesus with nothing. Nothing in and of ourselves. No matter how accomplished we are, no matter how smart, smart we are, no matter what we have or what we don't have, we come with nothing in and of ourselves. We come needy, messy, helpless. We come to Jesus just like a child. Just like a child. And that brings us back to verses 13 through 16. And the people were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Like a child. Or rather, childlike. We come to Jesus childlike. Now, we're not talking about being childish. The the Apostle Paul tells us to put off childish ways. 
but we're talking about a posture of humility and dependence, just like a little child. We receive the gospel, and then we live out in the reality of God's kingdom, moment by moment, day by day, in dependence on Jesus, just like a child. Makes me think of my own children. In fact, I think particularly of our two infant twins, Ty and Mercy, seven months old. There's not a lot that they can do for themselves. They are needy. They are helpless. It's sometimes they are extremely messy. I won't tell which end that comes from. They can't feed themselves. They can't bathe themselves. They can't change their diapers, though I'm working on that. They can't get in and out of the crib. They're starting to be able to roll, but eventually they just roll into something and get stuck. But just like our infant twins, we come needy, messy, helpless, completely dependent on another, just like a child. Again, verse 15. Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. In this story, writes one theologian, the children are not blessed for their virtues or what they have, but rather for what they lack. They come only as they are. A little child has absolutely nothing to bring. And whatever a child receives, he or she receives by grace on the basis of sheer neediness rather than by any merit inherent in him or herself. Little children, like the blind beggar, are paradigmatic disciples. They are our model disciples. For only empty hands can be filled. Uh, Tom Cannon, a former RUF campus minister and now pastor of a PCA church in Birmingham, he states, The kingdom that Jesus ushers in is the kingdom of need, one of grace and God's unmerited favor. But that repels us, and we rebel. In our brokenness and sin, we are hardwired to do it ourselves, and so we create our own kingdoms, kingdoms of self-sufficiency, and thus we trifle with our souls. In our sin, our rebellion against God, we run from Him. We run from being helpless. In fact, as Paul Miller puts it, we have become allergic to helplessness. Maybe you know Paul Miller, author of A Praying Life. Many of you have read it. He writes this. God wants us to come to Him empty-handed, weary, heavy laden. Yet we want to get rid of our helplessness before we come to God. And that is not the gospel. The Apostle Paul speaks to the Colossians. He writes, Therefore, just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so also walk in Him. In the same way that you receive Him, that is the same way that you walk with Him moment by moment, day by day. We received Jesus in our weakness, and so we follow Him in our weakness. 
Like a child, we come to Jesus in our helplessness and need. Like the blind beggar, we cry out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And he does. He delights in answering that prayer for mercy. He delights in answering that prayer from sinners who want to know His grace, His mercy, His goodness. Because remember, all of this, all of this is in the context of grace. I think of a a father whose little girl with autism didn't take her first steps until after she was three years old. Maybe you know that most kids take their first steps on either side of one year. But this little girl, not until after she was three, still unable to talk. Do you think that that dad scolded his child for being so slow? Do you think that he scolded her for being so far behind the other kids? No. No, that daddy celebrated her every step. He cheered her on. He picked her up every time she fell and delighted in his child every step of the way. So too, our Heavenly Father does not scold us for being so slow. In fact, He knows our sin. He knows our our continual struggle. And He welcomes us in Jesus. He loves us and knows that we've been disabled by the fall. Which is why in Jesus... He gave Himself for us that our sins might be nailed to the cross. You see, our good God, our good Father, He celebrates our every step. He picks us up every time we fall. He delights in our learning. Our learning to see Him. Our learning to trust Him. Like a little child. And He is with us. And He is for us. Every single step of the way. That is the gospel of grace. And so we turn to the God of grace. Please pray with me.